Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Dylan, I have like one big point to make about the Dust Bowl. Absolutely, other than that, you, do. you can go. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to give you some foreshadowing before I got into it. My thing is going to be having one historical thing that I just spent a lot of time thinking about. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm Dylan Matthews, and today we're talking about climate change, specifically how climate change has caused people to move both globally and within the U.S. And before we jump into our regular panel discussion, we really wanted to set the scene for you. So we decided to bring in our colleague, Rebecca Lieber, who covers climate issues for Vox, to help explain the current landscape of climate refugees. Uh, So Rebecca, welcome to the show. It's great to be on. So climate refugees has been a term that's been around for a long time. What do sort of climate experts like yourself mean when they talk about climate refugees? How does that look differently when you're talking about within a country versus across countries? What are we talking about here? We know climate change will mean a lot of stress that um, human civilization hasn't really been equipped to handle. And that can translate in flooding, in sea level rise, in drought, and in extreme temperatures and wildfires. And we're seeing this play out in the U.S. and around the world. The term climate refugee itself is a bit to untangle just to start with, because the term refugee is a legal term applied to asylum seekers. But um, we're talking about um, migration that uh, has lots of different causes and the world hasn't even come to terms with grappling with how you define a climate refugee or how you uh, define a climate migrant. I think we're just at the start of figuring this out. And we also see that play out within the U.S. when people have to relocate after disasters. We've had some experience with with sort of relocation after disasters. Uh, I think Hurricane Katrina was was one of the first sort of times when a lot of a lot of us saw that on mass with people leaving New Orleans. How widespread is this now? Are, are when something like the big wildfires in California happen, are you seeing sort of whole communities or, or, or uh, sort of huge chunks of the population moving to get away from the disaster? Or are people sort of pretty rooted to these communities, even with with some of these stresses? Yeah, I'll throw out a few pretty terrifying stats of what the next few decades will look like. Um, At least 85% of the world's population is already affected in some way by climate change. And we are seeing the climate warm a little bit over one degree Celsius. That's just the start because we um, can expect if the world doesn't change its path to hit that 1.5 and then 2 degree mark within the next few decades. From there, climate migration grows exponentially. There's a variety of models looking at what that translates into world population, but I've seen anywhere from 200 million by 2050 being forced to migrate or be displaced from their homes to um, actually upwards of 1 billion people who are displaced because of climate disasters and other stressors. Within the U.S., the New York Times did a really fascinating investigation about a year ago that looked at how nearly one in two Americans will likely experience some 
decline in the quality of their environment and some kind of stress because of climate change. So this really touches everyone. It's it's hard to imagine between fire and sea levels encroaching, extreme precipitation events. It's it's hard to imagine who isn't affected. The issue is we just haven't even started to grapple with that. Our policies are still really baked into this stable climate that we no longer find ourselves in. We're still building to the past instead of the future. So when people are temporarily displaced because of a wildfire or because of a hurricane, we're seeing builders and uh, construction industry just come back and build again in places like Miami and fire-prone parts of the West. And we're not really seeing a grappling with what the future really looks like. Why do people go back and rebuild? Like, why are are these sort of coastal areas that that get hit by hurricanes, why do people go back and and just build houses up again? So there's obviously sort of some psychological reasons for that. People feel very attached to their homes, obviously. But but tell me a bit about sort of the policies that that contribute to that. Why, Why isn't it like prohibitively expensive to just be building these homes again and again? This might not come as a surprise to many people, but um, a big problem is our politics. So um, it doesn't help that we have had a climate denier as president and <laughs> policies that would push us to a better model. Um, we, we keep kind of taking a step forward and two steps back. Some specific programs that are problematic, uh, there's the National Flood Insurance Program that is uh, famously flawed because it doesn't consider maps that are changed because of climate change. It looks at past projections for 100-year floods when we are actually in a very changed climate. Our wildfire suppression budget is based on a 10-year rolling average. So again, we're looking at past averages to dictate the future when we know that future will look different. You can kind of pick your area. It's it's based on past projections. It's based on historic data. And one thing that we know uh, climate change will mean is that we have a greater chance of those extremes happening. We're not going to be run by averages. And I, I think that's a distinction when it comes to climate change. We're trying to forestall the worst possible effects, the most extreme effects, not the average effects. Because if we don't prepare for that extreme wildfire or that 100-year flood that is happening much more often, then we are not protecting and not helping the millions of people who lie in harm's way. So our federal policies need an update. This trickles down to the local level with cities incentivizing building on shorelines when they should not be. (laughs) And um, Biden has promised to upgrade kind of the agency approach to this. He has an executive order that said agencies have to look at how they update all their policies in in a world that's changed by climate change. But this is a slow-moving process. This is going to take years to see play out. And hopefully we would not have those policies just reversed in a future administration. I think it's important to, to think about sort of the distributional impact here, because sometimes people think about sort of coastal houses and you think of like Taylor Swift's mansion in, in Rhode Island, and I don't really worry about her. But presumably there's sort of communities, communities of color, sort of less advantaged communities that are going to be really affected by this. How does how does that and sort of environmental racism play into to, to this problem? Yeah, this is a really important point because the rich are going to be fine. They're, they can easily move. They have other options. And we see that playing out. We will see this more. And, and what um, experts are really worried about is these kinds of economic tipping points where the market does catch up to realizing that we cannot build in these areas because it's too risky. But then the people who can't afford to leave because they can't sell their home or their home has sunk in value, or they just can't leave for other reasons, for work or monetary reasons, that they become stuck in these areas, especially without the types of housing programs, the type of federal policies that would help to relocate them. So um, this is a really big issue. And when we're talking about the people affected, I'm not thinking of Taylor Swift. Um, (laughs) I'm thinking of people who um, are 
already vulnerable who will see just even more stress and more conflict. And and of course, there's the international element. We see this play out in terms of global conflict and areas of the global South. And this is not just a U.S. issue, but we, we, we do see this microcosm within the U.S. of the same economic inequality exacerbated because of climate impacts. We use this term climate refugee, but you were making a point when we were talking earlier that the refugee is, is a pretty specific legal term and and sort of the stresses of climate change fit kind of uneasily with that. So sort of do we is there even a category for someone who is sort of feels forced or, or strongly pressured to move because of environmental pressures like this? Sort of what what does our immigration system have to say about about people in that situation? I think we're just starting to see the tests of the current system. There's been a lot of pressure on the UN, for example, to designate a category for climate refugees specifically. Right now, um, there's still the historic channels of asylum seekers. And of course, we know how that that system also is behind the times and broken uh, to address the needs of global migration. But with climate change, I think you see this play out in really complicated ways because climate change can layer on other problems that are already existing. So it can exacerbate conflict over water resources. It can mean that someone who has spent their lives and their entire community's livelihood is in farming, they are hit by repeat droughts and extreme heat. That means crop failures. And these are the kinds of I guess, problems that that we haven't really considered in in applying labels or in 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 the court system when we're looking at how to how to accommodate uh, the people who will literally be forced from their homes because of these impacts. So you you talk a lot to to so climate activists and experts who are, who are trying to figure out solutions or, or proposals to, to address these kinds of problems. What are some of the ideas that you've heard people put out there for um, for both sort of supporting people internationally, whether that's sort of changing our immigration system, but also sort of anything with flood insurance or, or other programs that might make our adaptation to this and, and, and make it easier for people to get into safer living situations or, or avoid really catastrophic uh, situations? The most important thing um, to start with is we need to address climate change itself. This will become a bigger problem the worse climate change gets. And we are still not on a path for sustainability and a path where we have stabilized global carbon emissions. So one is um, this will be much worse once we hit that two degree mark and beyond because the world is on track for much worse warming than that um, highly studied two degree mark. So that's that's the most important one. But there's, of course, more we can be doing to help people. There's updating our domestic programs so we aren't just rebuilding in hazardous areas that we are actually building for the future and building to adapt to this world that's changed. There is also more um, social support and and spending, federal spending, in programs that help people relocate. So they're not the ones bearing the cost of that relocation, where, again, we see the Taylor Swifts able to move, but not lower-income people. Um, there's also a lot that uh, the court system and our immigration system needs to update. And this is, again, kind of, it boils down to this this debate we're having again and again about nationalism versus accepting that people need to relocate. And this is a very live issue where we just flip from a presidency that, that both denied climate change and tried to close U.S. borders to people who need help. So um, I think this is, climate change touches everything. It's an economic it's an immigration issue. It's a um, national security issue. It is about the very future of our civilization. So I think when we're talking about those solutions, unfortunately, it's very complicated. We have to look at how climate affects each part of the system. And I guess the, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is how this connects to, to Biden's agenda. You mentioned he had an executive order about climate migration. Obviously, they're trying to do something in the reconciliation bill to address climate change broadly, and of which this is this is a part. 
what what should people interested in this be looking out for as as that bill goes forward and as as they're sort of watching what the Biden administration is doing? Yeah, great question. Climate spending is incredibly important in this bill, the reconciliation bill specifically, which has more to help the U.S. both adapt to climate change, but also mitigate it and and do something about rising pollution. That plays into the international context because we have another international climate gathering happening next month. And what the U.S. does will matter a lot in terms of global ambition on this because Biden has to come to the table basically proving his promises that the U.S. can actually sustain this path where it does something about climate change that isn't just reversed by a um, Republican president. So he has to actually bring something to the table. So that all plays a big factor in negotiations for other kinds of um, bilateral deals, multilateral deals, where the world starts to address climate impacts and grapples with this issue of climate refugees. And, and this all is intermingled and highly dependent on Congress stepping up and actually saying the U.S. will take responsibility for its uh, role as the world's historic biggest polluter. Rebecca, thanks so much for walking me through all this. Uh, It was so much fun to be on. Rebecca Lieber is a senior reporter covering climate issues at Vox. It's time for a quick break, but when we come back, we'll get to our panel discussion on climate migration with Jerusalem Demsis and Dara Lind. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm Dylan Matthews, and for our panel today, I'm joined by Jerusalem Demsis, a policy reporter at Vox. Hello. And Dara Lind, an immigration reporter from ProPublica. Hi. Jerusalem, I'm a little curious how, how much this has come up for you reporting on housing, since so much of this is a housing story, both with sea level rise and fires, and just so much of this is about sort of like the, the physical houses that people are living in and threats to them. Like, how 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 has this sort of come up on your beat? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's becoming a big deal. So uh, Redfin did this poll earlier this year in April where they talked to 2,000 U.S. residents and 49% of Americans who plan to move the next year said that natural disasters were a factor. 
age distribution matters a lot for whether how seriously you take it. Younger folks are taking it more seriously than older people for you know various reasons, both for the political distribution, of course, but also if you're younger, it's going to be a bigger risk for you for a longer period of your life. Um, but it is something people are thinking about. And even if people don't explicitly categorize it as climate risk, right? Like just normally you think of, do I enjoy the climate of a place I'm moving to? Like, is the weather nice? Like that's a thing that people care about regardless of whether or not they've coded it as climate change or not. And I mean, this kind of migration is something that's like been a big story for a while. I mean, people um, moving to places like Phoenix, Arizona, or to Austin, Texas, or to uh, Miami, Florida. Like these are places people are moving because they are nice temperatures. <laughs> um, though to be fair, I don't think Phoenix is a nice temperature. I just think it's near California. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that I think that like the the interesting thing here though is that people are moving to places that they want to feel that they, they they like temperature of. But the problem is that you're in essence also baking in the kinds of problems that are going to lead to increase in temperatures as well. So for instance, you know, we saw a, a much a higher uh, increase in construction of new single family homes existing over the last year. As demand started surging, people started building these more. They're building single-family homes and building them out and just sprawl in the Phoenix suburbs, in the Austin suburbs, et cetera. And, you know, it's a problem for climate change, but it's also like a problem specifically for those individual people, right? Because homeownership is not just like, you know, you're buying a place to live. It's like a financial bet you're making about the neighborhood and the region that you're living in. And the financial bet of living in a place like Phoenix, where temperatures are exceeding like 110 degrees sometimes in summer, like that's kind of a risky bet to be made. And all of the costs or, or the risk is really borne often by the homeowner. And I think the there's this kind of broader tension here that I think is becoming more and more, you know, concerning between the desire to increase homeownership and also the desire to address climate change. Because there's a recent story from NPR that they looked into the homes that HUD uh, was selling uh, in order to increase the homeownership rate. They've been offloading a bunch of properties and they're trying to target those at folks who have not traditionally had access to homeownership. And so, you know, there's that one desire to make sure you're increasing homeownership. And then what this... um investigation by NPR found is that that these are places that are in flood prone areas. So by doing that, you are also actually locking in a bunch of lower income Americans into a financial future where they're going to be affected not only physically by the fact that floods or or other kinds of, uh, you know, weather events can affect their home, but it's also a financial risk to them. So like you think that you're providing them a, ser- a financial service by giving them a home, but really you might be damning them at the same time by putting this into their future. And so I think the problem is that often our, I think this is something that Rebecca really talked about in the last um, segment is that our, our policies are not being integrated across different spaces to address the same problem because there are a lot of things that push people into homeownership beyond personal preference. It's stuff like, you know, the fact that renting is just absolutely so terrible. There's so few tenant protections in the majority of the country. It's the fact that there's like massive tax breaks that you get if you're like wealthy and own a home and things like that. So this is not like an, a, you know, like a policy neutral stance that people are taking by choosing to buy a home. It's, it's something that's being incentivized by the federal government. And if we think that that's the appropriate way to build wealth, we also have to address the fact that, you know, the way that we're building homes is exacerbating the very problems that are going to make people financially insecure. Right. I mean, I think one way to think about this is which costs are being socialized and which costs are not, right? Like Jerusalem, you're talking about, you know, this homeownership benefit program is something that's really going to shift costs onto individual consumers who are like supposed to be getting the benefits that like are already built into the tax code and a bunch of other programs where like, you know, one of the arguments for bringing people into homeownership is that we already have a system that socializes the costs of homeownership in many other ways. Um, But at the same time, you know, the other side of the failure so far to kind of revamp policy to be more forward-looking and to think about future climate risk is that there are costs that are being socialized that, you know, you could, that end up incentivizing people staying in or or moving to places that are going to be more vulnerable in the future, which is where the flood insurance program comes in. For example, that program has not been solvent since 2004. And, you know, there are two, pro- two kind of macro problems that have developed, that have become apparent. One is that FEMA is paying out a bunch of money to people who are totally uninsured under the flood insurance program, which in theory is supposed to be mandatory for people who live in federally designated flood areas. Although, fun fact, there's actually no way that the government can measure compliance with these things because there are so many agencies involved. Um, But, you know, after 
a natural disaster, they end up having to pay out a bunch of money after emergency declarations are made, that kind of thing, to people who weren't paying into the program to begin with. The other problem is that until very, very recently, the premiums that people paid weren't based on the cost of replacing their homes, which made it kind of regressive because regressive because it meant that somebody with like a million dollar home wasn't paying any more into the system than somebody with a four hundred thousand dollar home or you know seventy five thousand dollar home and weren't taking into account either the future risk of you know natural disaster destruction due to climate change or even the type of flooding that would be most likely to occur, whether that was because you were close to a riverbed because you were living living in an area that was prone to extreme rainfall, et cetera. So, you know, this sort of program, which in theory is supposed to be socializing costs in a way that, you know, makes the whole community more resilient, but also does kind of try to factor into the cost of the home, how high its insurance premiums are going to be, has ended up really detaching the two of those so that people who are in objectively very flood-prone places aren't paying in as much in premiums as you know they would be in a more forward-thinking model. And so the costs of those homes are deflated relative to what they would be. So it's a world where we've really, you know, either by inaction or kind of the deliberate cultural politics of it, which I think is something that we should, you know, that that's worth kind of thinking about. But we've ended up strongly socializing the costs of staying in homes without socializing the costs of potentially relocating uh, in order to be resilient in future. And and that the the obvious solution to to that would be to make the the flood insurance premiums more accurately reflect the the risk of floods in those places. But sort of as Jerusalem was talking about earlier, like it just leads to these intersections with all these other problems without really easy solutions. Um Ji Jenny Zhao had a had a great piece for Vox uh, back in February 2020 about sort of a, a foreclosure crisis that that flood insurance might be be causing, and she she talked a lot about Canarsie, Brooklyn, which is a uh, close to uh, the Atlantic Ocean, the the Hudson Bay, and a, a majority black neighborhood in New York City. And due to FEMA flood insurance somewhat reflecting the dangers of living there, not to the full extent it arguably should in, in sort of pure risk terms, as, as Dar was saying, flood insurance premiums were skyrocketing. And a lot of activists in this neighborhood, like very understandably, under, saw this as sort of an economic and racial justice issue, that they were being priced out of their, their neighborhood by this federal program. As they experienced it, the government was choosing to force them out of their homes. And, and I think that plays into narratives around gentrification and displacement. And as easy as it is for me to look at that and say, like, you guys should be moving to sort of inland in Brooklyn or, or to other sort of less flood-prone areas. Like, I don't think I could pitch that in a way that makes sense to residents of that neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is that, like, place still matters to a lot of people. And, you know, because of broader cultural politics, uh, I think a lot of people are more likely to be sympathetic to, like, a lot of people who are sympathetic to the residents of Canarsie are less likely to be sympathetic to the people who are living on, like, the, you know, like, in in the quote-unquote redneck Riviera in the, you know, like, in, in, Al- in the, kind of the Alabama and Mississippian floodplain, that kind of thing, who also don't want to leave the communities where they feel they have roots. But it's really, both of those are expressing the same kind of normative feeling, which is that there are reasons to be, that, th- you know, they shouldn't just be making decisions about where they live their lives based on pure economic need or pure utilitarian calculus about where is least likely to flood in future that like they've that they're that it's okay and even a good thing to remain connected to the place where you live now and that there should be more effort to support people in that. Like the politics of say JD Vance, which I know are not necessarily, you know, it's not like that's the purest or most common expression of right populist politics, but it's certainly a a very common one, are really rooted in this idea of liberals want to tell you not to have an attachment to the place where you live, and that's bad, and they should be defeated. And it really is hard for me to imagine a policy regime that like individualizes the costs of living places that are very climate vulnerable without 
really galvanizing this existing debate over who values place and like who should be bearing the costs of remaining where you are. And I mean, beyond that, too, the the problem is is not just that, uh, you know, there are people have different expectations around how much place matters, but also just, you know, there's not even an avenue, really. If you're like a low income homeowner living or a renter or a homeowner living in uh, a climate risky area, it's not like there's just all of these homes available to you in climate f- like safe arenas that are near good jobs and like, you know, that you can like move your family to and, and relocate to. Like it's like uh, their, their existing housing policy in the United States has made it very difficult for people to have that as an option um, and taken out. And one one idea that was bandied about was that what NFIP funds should be used for is to buy out pre flood risk home value number and buy out existing property owners. Um, and then they can go wherever they need to go. And the government would then return that to just being like a natural preserve or something like that, rather than allowing it to be open for more development. That kind of process only works if there's somewhere for people to go. Like you can have a decent chunk of change, but if you go to you know, further in in Brooklyn, like we're talking about this example, like there's not enough homes for people to be able to access that kind of housing opportunity near them. And what we know from existing research is that most domestic climate migrants move very close to where they already were. Like, so someone who gets displaced by a fire in California is likely moving to like a county over. They don't like move usually like across the country or things like that. But there's also research that's like foretelling like kind of bigger trends here. Obviously, we've seen some of this stuff um, as house prices get more expensive in some of these coastal cities where people are moving to. Um, We talked about like Austin and and Phoenix and places like that. But there's research showing that like one in 12 Americans in the southern half of the United States are going to move towards California, the Mountain West and the Northwest in the next 45 years. Um, That's a lot of people. Um, And, you know, we can talk a lot about, you know, where they're going to go and like what's going to happen there. But I think it's also important to talk about the people that get left behind because mobility is also a function of relative privilege as well. Like obviously all of these people are really disadvantaged in various ways, but you know, if you're disabled, if you're elderly and don't have the ability to go get a new job, if you are an individual who doesn't have connections in different places or confidence that your skill set will translate to a new labor market and what you rely on is like a local network of people that you know and trust to get you new employment, like that is something that really ties you to one location. And of course, there's various other government policies that make it even more difficult Occupational licensing is something that people talk a lot that restricts mobility. The idea that you have to be licensed as a hairdresser differently in one state versus the other. I mean, these are ridiculous restrictions on people's ability to move freely. And, you know, I think this is a very clear example of how there needs to be like more intersectional on policy terms approach to um, addressing these crises. Because even if you had a really good program where NFIP dollars were being used to buy out people's homes, if they don't have a place to go, they don't have a job they can get to when they get there, they don't have a community they can build because not enough people can move with them, these are going to create big problems there too. So I I wanted to ask uh, Dara a bit about uh, sort of the international dimension here. We've been talking a lot about sort of migration within within, within the U.S. um, And and, and that's important and it's going to be a, a huge deal going forward. How is gathering some string on climate refugees an international problem a few months ago and it just, it seems very messy that people moving due to climate don't seem to fit into any of the normal categories. Um, like, what, what, if anything, do we have in the immigration code for that right now? Like, the short way to describe this is that the way that the international order has conceived of refugees, which is, you know, the source for American and most other national laws on the issue, didn't really accommodate a pre-climate change world very well. So it's now like two waves delayed because the the fundamental truth of the international refugee order is that it was built in the years after the Holocaust. And so it's rooted in this idea that what that the international community needs to work to ensure that people have a chance to leave their country if their government is persecuting them because of who they are. It makes a lot of sense if you're looking at the horrors of the Holocaust and in particular, you know, the failures of the U.S. and Western European countries to accommodate Jews who were attempting to flee Hitler's regime. Um, But even 
you know, even in a world where climate refugeeism was not an increasing problem, there are still lots of problems associated with like what happens if your life is at risk, but it's because of a transnational gang or another non-state actor. What happens if you're not being threatened because of like race or religion, but because of your gender or your sexuality? There's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that has kind of gotten kludged in um, because it's showing up in like in human beings who are coming and seeking accommodation under this order, but that hasn't really been grappled with in a, in a global way. And so now we're at a point where that is, you know, it's, it's now kind of lapped. <laughs> Reality has lapped the legal regime. And, you know, while Rebecca is talking about the kind of what's needed at the next round of international climate negotiations, something that I think is a really helpful comparison is like, there aren't even close to the kind of international, like hard commitments on refugee stuff that there is on climate emissions. It's not just that like, there's no Paris for refugee issues. It's that there's no Kyoto. Like the international order has just not come to a place where countries are willing to accept hard you know, like making hard commitments to an international body about willingness to accept refugees for like very obvious domestic political issues. And so it's really hard to imagine what such a regime would look like because it's not just a question of like, how do you write a legal standard that somehow accommodates people who are absolutely going to be like destitute and starving because their crops have failed, you know, without like, just opening up any economic, you know, anyone who wants to leave their agriculturally based lifestyle and go to a more industrialized country. But also, even once that standard has been written, how on earth do you get countries to, you know, commit to a world where people who are leaving climate vulnerable locations are going to have to go somewhere else? I I think one of the things that really brings, um, the difficult politics of this to bear is the fact that we've kind of experienced something very similar to this before. I think most folks here have heard of the of the Dust Bowl, um, but in uh, you know 1930s United States, we experienced a massive climate emergency where you know millions of people during the course of the 1930s were displaced from their homes because of a climate catastrophe. And in addition to, of course, the financial emergencies that were going on at the time, um, since it coincides with the Great Depression and we saw a lot of real castigating of the types of people who were leaving um, these places and trying to find safe a safe place to live. And, uh, you know, Colorado tried to make it illegal for, um, they were called Okies, even though they're not all from Oklahoma. It's places, they also include places from Texas and and from Arkansas and Missouri, but they were called Okies generally. And Colorado tried to make it impossible for you to come in. Um, you know, there was an anecdote that I read when, when looking this stuff up about how a police officer tried to turn a woman away from the California border saying, you need to pay $3 for a California driver's license unless you come in here. She told him she only had $3.50 to her name and she and her children would starve if she gave it to him. So he relented. But there are a lot of these anecdotes that show just kind of like how there was a a massive lack of solidarity that kind of happened when it came to these kinds of emergencies that even people don't uh, usually feel like is an individual person's fault. Like usually what we see after climate emergencies is there's an outpouring of support. People are really sad. But then when it comes to like, you know, okay, well, people now need to come move to your area there. There's a turn there. And um, as part of my enduring project to bring fiction to the weeds, I think that (laughs) The Grapes of Wrath um, by Steinbeck is like a really good encapsulation of what happens here. And uh, there's one quote that I think is really important here where he says, uh, Steinbeck writes, it ain't that big. The whole United States ain't that big. It ain't that big. It ain't big enough. There's not enough room for you and me, for your kind and my kind, for rich and poor together, all in one country, for thieves and honest men. And this is a sentiment that I think is obviously people will read as as xenophobic in many contexts, but it's also something where when you have financial emergencies coinciding with climate emergencies, it becomes really clear that's how people are going to respond. If you kind of have a system where the economy, as as you know, where we're seeing a lot of places is not doing so hot for a lot of people and the, the gains from growth are not being distributed equitably, then when a climate emergency hits, no one's going to feel like, oh, I have enough here in my area, in my city, whether it's, you know, it, it, whether, wherever you are to be able to distribute that to people who need to come in. So a lot of the work that needs to be done in order to be able to actually address the climate refugee crisis that's going to come is going to um, 
rest on the fact that we've already done the work in the places that are less climate risky to make people feel accommodating of new folks. And, you know, I I, I think we just saw with the Afghan refugee crisis quite a few examples of how this this didn't work out. Like, obviously, there was a lot of outpouring from liberal places about how um, we need to be uh, letting in Afghan refugees, need to make them uh, available, um, housing and other supports available to them. But when the State Department put together a list of places where Afghan refugees could actually settle, they made it clear that there were a lot of progressive liberal cities that were inhospitable to refugees because the the cost of living was too high. And so I think that there's a lot, and I I think I've said this now twice already, but there's a lot here that is about policy that doesn't seem at first glance to be about climate that is going to be really hard to deal with if we're also dealing with a massive refugee crisis, both either domestic or or external. Right. And and just to like make this super duper clear, the current, you know, quote unquote, like quote unquote border crisis, the current crush of people on the, you know, like on, on the U.S.-Mexico border and people transiting up through the American landmass to get to the United States is partly from Caribbean islands where, in you know, there are plenty of like, Obviously, there's a lot going on with Haiti that has nothing to do with climate, but like not for nothing, Haiti has also been hit with a ton of hurricanes in the last decade, and partly from Central America, which got hit with two like generationally big hurricanes in December. So these are really good examples of places where, you know, the decision to move is not obviously based on a singular climate event, but it's not inaccurate necessarily to say that among other things we're looking at a wave of climate refugees. Um, but I do think that I actually, Jerusalem, I was also thinking about the Graves of Wrath some because I was thinking that like, it seems less imaginable now, given the current policy status quo, that there would be such a mass emigration from an area that was under acute climate stress, right? That it seems it seems that instead there would be a an attempt at least initially at a political solution that would support people being able to stay in the places where they are. And I wonder how much of it is that like, you know, the the Dust Bowl wasn't, didn't come on the heels of several decades of, you know, unceasing agricultural plenty. It came as the worst bust in a continual agricultural boom and bust cycle mm. from the time when there was mass settlement of the West to begin with. And it's possible that, you know, I, I wonder if to a certain extent the politics of this have been poisoned by mid-20th century prosperity, where, you know, having tasted the ability to, like, be confident that the place where you live is going to be enough to provide for you and your descendants, it's much harder to imagine that, you know, we as a society don't have the resources to allow you to stay there forever. That like we are in fact constrained, you know, that even that even the United States, even though it's the most affluent and most powerful country on earth, may not have the resources to allow every single individual to live the precise life that they want. And that it's then a question of who, you know, who gets which resources, which is going to activate the kind of, you know, xenophobic or otherwise ungenerous politics of scarcity you were talking about. I I think I would actually just, I think that like often it's framed in this way that you're talking about where it's like, oh, like we don't have enough wealth or prosperity to go around and some people are going to give up. I actually think the current environment is restricting people's ability to do what they want. Like, it is not the case that everyone suddenly just has the, like, I think that, I mean, we're going to talk about, I guess we're teasing our, our, our mobility uh, study (laughs) in the second, in the the C block of this episode. But, um, you know, people have, we've seen declining rates of interstate mobility for a long time. And that's not because Americans have become less willing or less interested in moving to new places or wanting to like go somewhere different than they already are or like an increased desire to like care about the the home that they live in. It's because of like policies we've put in place to make it impossible for people to actualize their preferences. And that, you know, I think a lot more people, I mean, there's research that shows that indicates at least that a lot more people would be living in um, uh, coastal cities that would be living in like these kinds of and sub- suburb suburbs of um, places like San Francisco, like Los Angeles, like New York, like DC, um, Boston, LA, uh, uh, Seattle. And they would be living there if it was easier to live there. And that right now the actual trade-off is being made um, to restrict movement to those places. So this, I think there's like, I, I think there is like an overwhelming sense that this kind of 
massive climate event would necessitate people having to give up what they want. But I think it's actually potentially going to be a, tr- a trigger to push people to be able to actually go where a lot of them have wanted to go for a long time. And also like, you know, usual caveats about how like preferences are really hard to like measure, even if you're like an individual person, like what you want is really hard to like know. And um, like, usually it's like, if you have something good that comes out of that, you're like, yeah, I did want that to happen. And if it doesn't, um, uh, you know, you're like, oh, that was a, that was like a, not a preference that I had. It was forced on me. So I think there's all of that. And I, I mean, I think it's also illustrative that when um, the people who did end up moving, a lot of people end up moving to California. Um, the outcomes were like not great. California ends up putting them into a lot of these shanty towns. Um, there's like research showing that like 80 years later, um, Dust Bowl towns um, right now, Dust Bowl towns had like lower economic growth. And then the Dust Bowl emigrants who moved to places like California, their descendants do a lot worse in things like income and like um, other rates of like, you know, economic uh, well-being. Um, so, you know, it's not, you know, we don't have a great model for doing this well, but I do think that there is a, a model where there is like a growing pot that everyone can take part in. We're going to take a quick break and then to continue uh, Jerusalem's Grapes of Wrath theme, we're going to talk about whether the sons of Tom Jode actually were able to do better than Tom Jode. Woo. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know literature. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. All right, we are back. Now it's time for our white paper segment. This week's white paper is Intergenerational Mobility in American History, Accounting for Race and Measurement Error by Zachary Ward. This is out from the the National Bureau of Economic Research recently. There's a lot to talk about in this paper, but I think for me, the big takeaways were Ward is noting that a lot of evidence on income mobility, so whether children are are able to do better than their their parents or, or move ahead of sort of their family station um, in America are based only on white families. Uh, some of that is just due to data limitations, due to, to sort of it being difficult to talk about people's position in, in society during a time of slavery, due to immigration, making it harder to sort of link parents, grandparents, great-grandparents to, to their descendants. So Ward tries to do a linked used linked census data to estimate uh, intergenerational mobility, uh, including non-white families. And the big takeaway of including non-white families is that mobility was way lower from 1850 to 1940 than, than other estimates suggest. But he also suggests that it's been increasing and that uh, sort of since 1940, we've seen substantial increases in mobility for non-white Americans, especially which is notable because a lot of studies focusing on white Americans have seen declining mobility or suggested that that income mobility has been declining. And so Ward's, Ward's paper to me sort of suggests that that might be a very blinkered, white-centered view of what's happened in America over the last sort of 50 to 70 years. Yeah. And, and what Ward is doing in this paper is he's looking at, um, you know, obviously the broader thing that we're trying to measure here is that um, is your 
parents, and in this case, in this research, is your father's station um, determinative? How determinative is, is it? How about how how your life actually ends up? So, like, if your dad is a you know um, a shopkeeper, does that mean you're going to be a shopkeeper? Um, is that a fifty percent chance of becoming a shopkeeper? A ten percent chance? And it's not about like you know people doing better or in particular, it's just like is it kind of unlinked? Is how you do in life kind of unlinked from your your father's? Um, uh, station in his life. And I think that like, um, the way that he's trying to measure this is he's looking at occupations and a lot of the paper is kind of trying to explain the ways that it's really hard to measure (laughs) how much of your life is determined by how much your parents gave you. And so previous research kind of just looks at one, one, point in time where uh, someone said what their occupation was. But what Ward finds is that your occupation changes quite, can change quite frequently. And also beyond that, which I think is even more concerning for research like this, is that it is not coded the same in every time you are giving that information to a researcher. So for instance, if someone says that they're a farmer, I think that that was like, it's very clear. And like, you know, you're able to, okay, you're a farmer and different sources of information are able to make clear what that is. But if you say something like, you know, you are um, a shopkeeper, it might be coded as one thing in one sense of data and one thing in another. Which And the reason why that's important is because you know, that's going to increase the likelihood that people think that mobility was really high in the past when really it's the same job you've had the entire time. It's just being interpreted differently by the data. And so that's like the big thing. That's one of the big things he finds here is just that we have this sense, I think, as in like American politics, that there was this past at some point where America was really free. People were able to have equality of opportunity, that what your dad's station was didn't determine your station, at least for the population of of white men in particular, um, this was possible. But what he's saying is that we have a lot of biased data where we are now thinking that the past is actually not uh, that much of a, um, you know, we're looking at the past with rose-colored glasses, essentially. And I think that that's really important here because I think that a lot of the conversation now about declining, you know, uh, uh, increasing inequality and declining mobility in this way is trying to return us to something. But really, it's something that we just actually haven't had in a long time or ever, actually. I know that there's like a lot more going on in this paper than just a methodological revolution, but I do want to give a shout out to the um, the the data project that this paper was able to take advantage of, which is the census linking project. A big shout out to Abramitsky and at Al 2020, because the reason that this paper is able to do this where previous papers were not is that instead of having to pay an army of undergraduate research assistants to go through every single census and try to match every single parent to every you know every single parent across censuses to every single child across censuses or every single father to every single son they were able to take advantage of this like publicly available data set that uses that that uses a much more sophisticated not perfect but like more sophisticated al- algorithmic method to match the people who are likely to a certain degree to be the individual you're talking about and so i think that you know people who are Consumers of NBER research, or at least consumers of Weeds white paper segments, should be on the lookout that like this is probably not the last paper we're going to see that is going to be able to take advantage of this kind of quantum leap forward in economic history data to challenge some of the assumptions that we've had based on these like inferior but previously necessary methodological snapshots and can instead give us some like real longitudinal evidence on what's persisted and what hasn't. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly methodologically interesting and and innovative paper. I feel bad for for researchers working on this just because like the data is so bad that you have to make these kind of imputations based on occupation and and region. We obviously don't have income tax data from before the U.S. had an income tax. And so uh, you don't have that sort of administrative record of, of these people's incomes. Um, and, and as they note in the paper, like, just like tracking incomes is not always a good way of tracking class. There are people who have boon years and lean years. And if you, you choose the wrong averages or have an incomplete sense of people's income, that might tell you less than, than occupations. So... So much of the the disparities in in the literature on mobility seem like they might be about differences in measurements and gaps in the data. What the variable you're looking at is Greg Clark at UC Davis has has done a lot of stuff matching people by surnames. And so sort of 
measuring how common sort of elite surnames in Sweden are over time uh, and, and finding that, that, that their presence in sort of elite roles does not decline, which is part of his argument that, that sort of social mobility is very low. But like maybe that's just true in the elite jobs that he's he's talking about. And that's interesting, but it's different from the proxies that these other people are, are using. So I, I, I've learned a lot from this and I think it's like a good, a good reminder that sort of the kind of stagnation over the last 50 years that I think a lot of white Americans feel like they've experienced is a very white phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that it is, it is far better to be a black American in 2021, though certainly not I don't mean to gloss over any number of, of forms of oppression, but but certainly better than the 1961. I guess like the big question that this leaves me with and that you guys probably have like more thoughts than I do on is like, was there a past anomaly in which like white intergenerational mobility was higher than its historical average or its present level, like due to some some quirks, even though obviously like the measurement error shows it was lower than anticipated. It was still like a bunch bigger than, you know, than African-American mobility during the same period or than mobility today. Or are we looking at now, like is is the anomaly what we ha- have now where we do have greater economic mobility in the aggregate than we had in the past? Because that kind of seems to me to be like, I can't figure out whether this is an optimistic or pessimistic finding unless I know whether we were, whether the situation is like, well, the mid 19th to mid 20th century was weird for white people, but now we're back on track with historical stagnation, or whether we're looking at like, actually, the US has gotten to a point where there is more economic mobility than we typically have, which maybe means that we could like hit a new, you know, status quo plateau of, economic mobility that is unsatisfied as, you know, people might be with it is greater than humanity has generally seen. Yeah. One one potential quirk that might be going on in general is just the decline of farming. This comes through a lot in the paper, um, but it used to be that like a, a huge share, like 40 to 50 percent of people in America farmed. Uh, we did not have very uh, developed technology in other areas. Uh, agricultural productivity was dramatically lower. And so you needed a really large farming workforce, including a, a very large enslaved farming workforce. And that declined very rapidly due to, to better agricultural technology. And so a lot of uh, this poses a methodological challenge in the papers. So Ward often sort of mentions doing farmerless sort of statistics to try to get around the sort of difficulties of including farmers. But there's part of me that thinks that like that should have boosted social mobility at a period that as sort of low income farming was shrinking as a share of the population and sort of forcing sons to do something other than what their their fathers did, that those sons would go into sort of higher income professions. And that sort of shock of like by the early 20th century, there were a small minority of Americans were working in farming. And so maybe by that point, the social mobility gains of people moving out of agriculture were pretty minor uh, going forward. Um, and, and we experienced those pretty early on. And, and then that accounts for a decline in social mobility. But this is just me spitballing. I don't I don't have an MBER paper on <laughs> yeah. this. Yeah, I think I would I think I would add to like it's important to that for some people like mobility is not good. Like if you're already rich, like you don't want mobility. You want the outcomes that your your dad had because <laughs> that was like, it worked out well for you. So like, I would love to see a kind of like a breakdown of this data in the future, because if it is that the decline in white mobility is entirely by the lower end of the economic distribution, that's like really bad because it means that, you know, lower income folks are not able to like move up where they need to go. But if it's being concentrated among um, individuals who are doing really well, like that's not necessarily fully a terrible story for those people in particular. But I think one of the, broadly, I think one of the most one of the more interesting things about this paper is you know, I think we have this sense that high, you know, we know that high inequality countries have low mobility in general. And what he finds is that uh, during kind of like the Great Gatsby era is, is what it's kind of termed, that that is true, that you find that relative mobility is low. 
But then he finds that for the post-1960 birth cohorts, he finds that during the recent rise in inequality, you haven't found a fall in relative mobility. While it's the case that you still see it for white Americans, because black Americans have increasing um, mobility during this time, because of, of, you know, I think this is like a a good story for the social welfare programs and the uh, civil rights movement as a whole for what it was able to do for social mobility during this time period. You have overall an increase in mobility going on in the United States, despite an increased level of inequality. Um, This is like, interesting because it's, you know, it's something that I definitely believe before. I don't think I fully changed my mind, but I, before reading this paper, I was definitely fully on board with the whole inequality and, and mobility are linked in this way. But if they're not, I mean, I think that, that like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a more difficult, it's a more difficult story for what, how you have a policy response. Well, we haven't solved social mobility today, but I think in conclusion, I'm very grateful that I am not an oaky farmer in California in the 1930s and that I've had some mobility from any ancestors of mine who might have been in that situation. So on that cheery note, thank you all for listening to The Weeds. Special thanks to Rebecca Lieber, senior reporter covering climate issues at Vox for helping set the stage for our panel today. Thank you as always to Vox's Jerusalem Demsis and ProPublica's Dara Lynn for joining the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. You can get even more weeds by signing up for our newsletter. Go to vox.com weeds newsletter. If you like this show and want other people to be listening to it so you can talk about it with your friends, please rate, subscribe, and review in your podcast app, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you, you get your podcasts. It really helps a lot. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.